0: Today's special episode is an interview with Dr. Joan Dijon on her new book, Mutinous Women, How French Convicts Became Founding Mothers of the Gulf Coast. Her book couldn't be more exciting. Climate crisis, the first economic bubble and meltdown, corrupt police, murder, exile, it has everything. In the early 18th century, the French government was looking to create a colonial empire on the Gulf Coast. To accomplish this, it rounded up innocent women wrongfully accused of murder and other high crimes to serve as colonists in a bitter, inhospitable territory. Joan Dijon has been trustee professor at the University of Pennsylvania since 1988. She previously taught at Yale and Princeton. She is the author of 12 books on French literature, history, and material culture of the 17th and 18th centuries, including The Invention of Paris, Making the City Modern, The Age of Comfort, When Paris Discovered Casual and the Modern Home Began, The Essence of Style, How the French Invented High Fashion, Fine Food, Chic Cafés, Style, Sophistication, and Glamour. She grew up in southwest Louisiana in a family and a town in which Louisiana's French past was the stuff of daily life. For over 30 years, she has divided her time between Philadelphia and Paris, where she has always worked in the very archives in which, in 2016, she happened upon the story of the women banished and deported to Louisiana in 1719. so much for being on the show, Dr. Dijon. Uh, by the way, I should ask, Is it uh, are we going to go full French? Is it uh, Dijon, or how would you pronounce that?
1: My name is, a, is like much of French and involving Louisiana, Gary. I'm, my name is pronounced Dijon in Louisiana. Yeah, but I have given up trying to explain this variant long ago, so I just go with Dijon. Except when I'm in Louisiana, I tell people because we're a clan, a numerous clan down there. So I tell people I'm a Dijon from Opelousas, but I'm Joan Dijon in most of my life now.
0: Thank you so much for being on. It is going to be interesting jumping, jumping back and forth because, of course, we have the famous city, which in French is uh, Nouvelle-Orléans, which most Americans pronounce New Orleans, but which they would pronounce Nolins. But in any case, we will try to avoid any confusion as much as possible as we talk about your book, Mutinous Women, How French Convicts Became Founding Mothers of the Gulf Coast. Your book deals with a largely unknown event in history where roughly 200 women were forcibly deported from largely Paris to the French Louisiana Territory in the early 1700s. But it's more than that. You claim that these cruel exiles were caused due to a crisis in the climate, the first modern economic bubble, and urban overpopulation. Can you explain the greater events that led to these deportations?
1: Big questions, Gary, but thank you. Really good ones, I'll do my best. The early 18th century in France was sort of, you could describe it as a perfect storm leading up to what happened to the women for several different reasons. First of all, there was an extended period of severe climate change. Every one of the things, by the way, that happened in France, and I think would be very familiar to your listeners today. For the main factor that influenced climate, factor that influenced these women were extraordinary cold waves, particularly one that was so severe that it became famous. Everyone knew about the great winter of 1709. It ruined everything. For an agricultural economy like France's was at the period, crops were ruined everywhere. Farmers were, were bankrupted. Famine set in to an extent that was extraordinary. It was a massive death toll that year and for several years following. Because of the great winter of 1709, several of the women who were later deported were orphaned and lost everything, all family ties. Others lost most of their close family members. And all over France, there was widespread, intense poverty in all ranks of society. So first of all, climate crisis. Second of all, huge financial crisis. Now that began in the very early years of the 18th century because of the wars, Louis XIV's, the end of Louis XIV's reign was marked by bigger and bigger wars trying to expand French territory. They were ever more costly. And by the time Louis XIV died in late 1715, France was bankrupt. At that moment, the regent governing France Philippe d'Orléans, for whom that city you were just talking about, New Orleans, Nouvelle Orléans was named, Um, Philippe d'Orléans turned the French economy over to a Scots financial theorist named John Law. I think John Law was a brilliant financial theorist, but he was given like the biggest playing field possible. He decided to try out all his ideas at once. So a very conservative economy that had known none of this, all of a sudden, in a year's time, the French get a national bank. They hadn't had any banks. They've got a national bank. They have paper money for the first time. They have publicly traded stock, stock founded in the Indies Company, um, uh, on which Louisiana was based. All of these things introduced us at once. The result was the first stock market boom in history, followed by the first stock market bust in history. And as a result of this, a few people in France with insider trading information became incredibly rich. Most people were ruined and the poor in France already suffering were wiped out by inflation, monumental inflation that resulted from all of this. So you have even more extreme and widespread poverty resulting in spreading all through French society. And I'd add a third element in Paris at that time, as during this moment of financial crisis, huge police corruption. It was encouraged by this dominant atmosphere of easy money. No one was paying attention to the poor in Paris. And you're right, there was a huge Overpopulation in cities as a result of the movement to Paris during the climate crisis and the famines in the provinces and all these poor in the city, the police can do what they want with them and they know that and the women who were deported to what became of the french territory in this country were victims of all these factors
0: what a strange fantastical world i am sure that none of my listeners can relate but perhaps they can imagine it if there is a central character to your book it is manon fontaine can you tell us who she was how did she first come into contact with police And how did she end up in one of the most awful prisons in France?
1: Okay. Manon Fontaine was, I think, an extraordinary woman. Uh, She was first arrested in Paris in 1700. Totally accidentally, total false arrest. One night, the French police found a man, the Parisian police found a man murdered in the streets of Paris, a corpse. It was pitch black. 4:30 4.30 in the morning in December in a section of Paris without street lighting, no one could see anything. Someone in the crowd who gathered and the crowd that gathered around the, the body said to the police, oh, we think we saw her walking by. She lived across the city." So that accidental mention led to her arrest She said immediately, but no, I was at home. She was a 19-year-old, illiterate young Parisian being raised by a single mother. They shared a room. They shared a bed. She said, no, I was at home in bed with my mother. Ask her. The police never asked her mother. She remained in prison. All kinds of people at first said they, they had seen her when they were confronted with her that confrontations were, there was a judicial process during her trial when they were confronted with her. One after another, they said, no, we've never seen her before. So it was all false. But somehow the arrest stuck. And it's a long story. But she never, the French police judicial system never gave up on her. They finally managed to hold her on a technicality. And because of that, she was sentenced to lifetime imprisonment. In this really terrible prison for women, um, called the Salpetriere, but in the section of it called La Force. in other words, where you could the police could use any tactics, major force on the prisoners in that in that section. So this is a young woman. She was an illiterate street vendor, Manon Fontaine. She wandered around Paris carrying a basket. Can you imagine the weight of this—a huge basket on her back. Of fruit to sell. And she had strapped around her waist a flat basket where she displayed some of the fruit. And she would wander through the city calling out, you know, I have apples today or I have pears or whatever, all day long. And this was her life for 19 years until she was locked up in prison for 19 years. And then she was sent over to Louisiana.
0: And what's remarkable is. The technicality you're talking about was that she was exiled from Paris for a while, but then the police demanded that she return to Paris for a summons. And then that was the technicality that they held her on, that she followed the law by answering their summons.
1: Yes. Thank you, Gary, for pointing that out. I didn't go into all that because it's a complicated story, but you remembered it from the book. She was banished from Paris. They had nothing to hold her on. So they just they, would, banishment was the easiest and most common uh, form of punishment. They banished her. Most people never left Paris. Manon was so law-abiding that she did move to the country, and there the police say issue a summons and say you have to come back for questioning, and she did was arrested because she had not respected her banishment she'd come back to paris what was extraordinary was that this illiterate young woman by then she's 20 had the foresight she couldn't read the summons right she couldn't she she was illiterate but she kept it and she had it in her pocket so when they said okay you've not respected your banishment they tried to hold her again and she's and they had no evidence but they could convict her of not respecting her banishment. She said, but you made me come back. But that, of course, didn't matter. I think they just got madder at her because of the fact that she was right. And that's why they locked her up with a permanent, for, for life in prison. Not right. for, for for listening to the police and doing what they said. She got life in prison.
0: It is an absurd tale straight out of A Tale of Two Cities Do you want to describe the prison of Salpêtrière a bit before we move on? Because it was a, in your book, it's a truly harrowing prison.
1: It was. Um, It still exists today, by the way. Today, the Salpêtrière is a huge modern prison, but at the heart of it, there's a tiny section that remains of the prison that existed in the early 18th century, and by chance, That section is still there. And the day I got to look outside the facade, I was just trembling. It's just so awful looking and everything about it is tight and cramped. They stuffed women into these cells uh, up to eight. A cell was meant to hold four. They stuffed eight and 12 into them. There was a bed. The bed was big enough for four women to sleep in the bed. Other people would sleep on the floor. Sometimes they would take turns and forward sleep for part of the night and forward sleep for the other part of the night. They were made to, they worked, it was a workhouse. They worked all day long doing sewing and embroidery. Most French young women in France could do that. And the, the products of their labor were sold for the benefit of the prison. Um, they were fed very, very little. Um, I give the daily caloric intake in the prison it was this was their life all the time working all day long almost no food no exercise um the most from their prison cells some of them might have had a glimpse the windows are and i can vouch for this extremely high up so you might have gotten a little glimpse of sky that was your contact with the outside world
0: a truly harrowing scene at the prison, a major antagonist in your book is Marguerite Pantacelon. How did she help spur the deportations of women inmates?
1: She, Paul Catalan is an interesting figure. She was a member. She was, this was the only prison in Paris. It was a, this, this branch of, this, of the prison was reserved for women, and uh, so it had a female warden. This was She was a very, therefore the highest ranking woman in the Parisian penal system. Her family was an interesting family. They were a family of Parisian merchants. They were upwardly mobile. They had made money from their dealings as merchants, and they were buying positions for the children of the family, including this daughter, Marguerite. Um, she was literate, but barely so. Her signature is the signature of a woman doesn't really write. She can sort of scratch out something. So I wondered about her ability to read, etc. What I can tell you about her was that she was known as one of the harshest prison directors ever. People, the, as warden, people hated her and hated her reign. Every, what she was out for was personal gain. So selling the products of the work of these prisoners, making as much as she could through her prison. In 1719, when John Law, the fine, Scottish financial genius, the whiz boy, takes over the French economy, she sees an opportunity to get rid of prisoners and to curry favor. At that point, Law has just realized that Louisiana, to become successful as a colony, needs more colonists, in particular, female colonists. There are almost no women in what becomes the Louisiana Territory later. So she takes it upon herself, not the warden of the prison, to propose women who could be sent to this colony. Law loves the idea, of course. It's great. Um, and everything is accepted. When in the end, after she's successfully done this, he comes in person to the prison and gives her a huge gift for the prison, monetary gift, vast sum for the prison allegedly, but there would have been a big profit for her. So she has every incentive to do this. When she gets it ready, she draws up an enormous list for him, very beautifully done, guaranteed to impress, and it's called some inmates of the Salpetriere prison who should be sent to the islands. The islands referred to all French colonies um, in the Caribbean etc. She, she had no idea and most people in Paris didn't either that Louisiana was just not an island like everything else and on this list she listed the women's names and she listed their crimes. For example for Manon Fontaine who had been accused of murder yes Never convicted of murder. Manon Fontaine, never never even close to convicted for murder. Manon Fontaine is down on that list as, quote, having murdered 15 men. So that's the kind of uh, uh, warden Poncatelin was.
0: Truly remarkable that uh, she was a serial killer without one murder.
1: Yeah without even one, ser- I mean, just random accusations of people who, call- who, re- who said, immediately, oh, no, we've never seen her before, and she becomes a woman who's killed 15 men.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, there's always something new and delicious to enjoy. With over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, Factor is your go-to for all your dietary needs. Cheaper than takeout, healthy, and easy to prepare, Factor provides all the restaurant-quality meals, snacks, smoothies, whatever you need, they've got it and with food ready to heat and eat, you won't have to deal with the regular kitchen mess. Factor is giving out a special deal for our show's listeners. Head to factormeals.com/frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off. That again is frenchhistory50. At factormeals.com slash French History 50. Sign up now, your stomach will thank you later. Truly remarkable what the rumor mill could do in that day. And on that note, was there a type of woman marked for deportation?
1: I think you're absolutely right to ask a question like this, Gary. If I could do it, put it in one word. I'd say assertive, the women who were deported, I followed almost all of them through the legal system in Paris, through their arrest, through their um, imprisonment, et cetera. They were never passive. When they were accused, they didn't just shut up and let them deal with them. They, those who did, by the way, behave this way, generally got off with far lighter sentences. They, these women who, became, who were deported tried to defend themselves, as Manon Fontaine always did. She would say, I'm, I'm innocent, ask my mother. Um, I don't know these people, I brought, etc. All of them, when they were falsely accused, fought back, they talked back to the police. And I can't stress enough how courageous it would have been for young women, some of them are teenagers, many of them were 15, 16, 14 even, And they work as laundresses. They have no position in French society. They have no money. Many are orphans. If not, their families are desperately poor, workers barely earning a living. And they have nothing. No one cares about them. But an officer of the law, high-ranking officer of the police, arrests them, and they say no. They speak back. They defend themselves. They were courageous. And that's the kind of behavior it took. To get yourself deported
0: a truly incredible story now since you brought up deportation the process was pretty shocking can you describe the actual movement of these women from paris to the coast and then from the coast to the western hemisphere
1: first of all gary began of course in paris the women were removed from the prison they were chained to each other at the waist and they were put into carts open air carts tumbles that said at the time of the revolution and just plopped in these carts on top of hay they were driven to the coast to love or where the ship where they would board ship this way at night they were simply thrown into ditches because they couldn't escape from the ditches and they could sleep they could sleep if they could in these ditches they were not fed or barely fed along the way when they got to Lavo same thing any officer officers who accompanied the women on the journey were paid by the prisoner and by the day if you didn't feed the prisoner you made more money for yourself so we can imagine how much food they received when they got to Havre, they were eventually loaded onto a ship for transport. The ship was a ship that had been detoured. Its primary function in, in its history, the La Mutine is the name of the ship. It means the mutinous woman, and that's the origin of the, my book's title. La Mutine was a French slave ship. It had been created for the trade from West Africa to the Caribbean. It mainly went to Martinique at that period, um, but it made one voyage only from Le Havre to Louisiana. That was at, in directly like this, and that was to carry the women from France. They were chained in the hold of a slave ship to cross the Atlantic.
0: Where did these women first arrive, and what were their living conditions?
1: So they have been shipped away from France, all labeled dangerous criminals, right? Murderers, etc. They get to the colony and no one wants them. Who wants a group of, mad, of serial killers, um, violent offenders? That's how they were all described. So they land in what was then the colony's principal port, which was off Dauphin Island, a largest Uh, um, barrier island off the coast of what is now Alabama, but Dauphin Island wouldn't have them. So they threw them out of Dauphin Island, put them in rowboats, large rowboats, but rowboats, and rowed them a good distance on the Gulf. It would have taken several days to do this to another island, Ship Island, which is now off the coast of Mississippi, Um, and then they were simply left on Ship Island. Now, Dauphin Island had facilities. It was a port there, were, there was housing. On Ship Island, there was nothing. They were left on Ship Island with no constructions, no housing of any kind. It was late February. Now, late, the Gulf Coast is much warmer than other parts of this country today. Late February in the Gulf Coast is not balmy. And a, a barrier island gets extraordinary winds very cold winds, cold, damp winds. The women were deposited there. There was no fresh water on the island. There was no food on the island. Nothing had ever been grown there. They had no shoes by this point. They were not given blankets. They didn't even have tents. They had no tools to cut down anything to cover the ground. They had no tools, to de- nothing, fishing poles, anything to get food. I cannot imagine how long they, how they survived on Ship Island, how they fed themselves. But they, some of them survived despite these conditions. And eventually then they're taken, someone decided, okay, there would people seem to, no one was, I have no dates on these things. No one seemed in charge. No one cared about them. They'd gotten rid of them. That was the only objective, gotten them out of France. And then they had, the colony had to deal with them.
0: Not the Ideal Vacation for Sure, your book details a number of areas where these women eventually went to. Let's focus on two, the capital at the time of Biloxi, as perhaps we would pronounce it today, and the later capital and eventually large city of Nouvelle-Orléans, or New Orleans, can you tell us what happened to women and the town of Biloxi and then at New Orleans?
1: Okay. Biloxi was at that point, uh, had just been named capital. capital had been Mobile and they were moving it. They moved it to Biloxi. It was only briefly then. By the time the women were deposited, they just deposited them on the shore at Biloxi. And by the time this happened, the decision had just been made that Biloxi would no longer be the capital, but they would move the capital to a new capital, which was New Orleans. We'll talk about New Orleans in a second. But Biloxi, this temporary place, and Biloxi was in total havoc at the time. Nobody knew what was going to be the capital. In France, the financial bust, the stock market bust had taken place, and John Law, the person behind all of this, had decided where people were to be sent to various concessions, land grants in the colony. All of this was over. No one knew. There was no money. No one knew who was going to take charge of any of these. So various boatloads of colonists had been arriving, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of colonists. They were all just deposited on the beach at Biloxi and left there. The women arrive, they throw them into the mix. No one, there's no no there's no clear directives, it's chaos. Once again, pestilence had broken out in these temporary camps on the shore, people were dying in huge numbers. The women quickly realized that nobody cared about them, that nobody, whatever had been in the minds of people in Paris. Nobody was thinking of them at this point. So they just went where they, where they, wherever they wanted to. A few remained in Biloxi, not many. Some went to Mobile and started lives there. Some went much farther afield. There were women who made it from Biloxi. And if people know geography, think of this, from the beach at Biloxi all the way up to the wheat, the first wheat fields in Illinois so a huge distance along the Mississippi all the way up there, and they began to farm. They began to farm some of the first wheat fields in this country. Some of them made it to, it's inconceivable to me how this would have been possible, way into the wildest territory at the period in the Louisiana colony in Arkansas. And in Arkansas, they lived with virtually almost total isolation with very few other Europeans and vast numbers of indigenous peoples on all sides of them. And one of the women, for example, who had been deposited in Biloxi married a young Frenchman who became a major trader with indigenous people in Arkansas. So they had lives that were quite extraordinary on the sort of fringes of the French colony uh, of Louisiana. And then a huge contingent of the women made it to New Orleans. But people today will think New Orleans, a city, et cetera. The capital was promoted as the new capital of the colony, but there was no New Orleans yet. When the women got there, by the time they got there, this first big contention of the deported women got to New Orleans, the French weren't even sure yet that the site, the provisional site that had been chosen for it was the best site. So New Orleans might have been moved still. They weren't sure that they liked the name Orleans. they were still considering other names. So the women got to New Orleans before it was New Orleans, if you see what I mean. And so they're there. I, for me, this is what, so much of the story is inconceivable that this is one of the most inconceivable things to think about being the first women in what becomes a major capital of the French colonial empire but at that point New Orleans is what a few there was a tiny part of what became what is called the French Quarter today and it was a tiny part of that territory that space excuse me that had been cleared but just summarily cleared I can't even imagine what clearing was like in those conditions that meant you had to cypress trees have incredible roots. People, the, people had to dig up cypress trees, they had to cut back cane breaks. This was dense and wild vegetation that had to be cleared to produce land on which any housing could be built, not to mention any kind of public structures like you needed for a city. Um, and to do that, there were a hand, there was a handful of soldiers assigned to New Orleans, and they had begun the clearing. But the clearing of a good part of the, the origins, the foundation of the city of New Orleans was done by these women and their husbands.
0: A truly remarkable task for women who had just made the trip from Paris to the coast, then across the Atlantic. Now, Speaking of those who had made the remarkable journey, can you tell us what eventually happened to Manon Fontaine?
1: I certainly can, Gary. For me, the, there were many, of course, doing a book like this is a, was incredibly painful at times, to read about the injustices committed um, these women, the punishments. They endured um, the deaths of many of them during the initial process and the, the, just the horrors of all of it. But later on, I had some joy out of things. And Manon Fontaine was the woman who I think gave me the greatest happiness because I've told you about her arrest and you yourself questioned about all the things that happened to her during the judicial process in France, how she was condemned on the base of basis of ridiculous, just a joke, a historical joke, the, because she allegedly had not respected her banishment. She shipped off to Louisiana. She quickly marries a blacksmith. Now, blacksmiths tend to be strong men, strong hands to do the work of a blacksmith. Manon Fontaine was a strong woman. That's why I stress the fact that she had spent you know, her life walking every day with huge weights, huge loads on her back. She was. She knew hard work. A blacksmith and an itinerant, itinerant street vendor together started clearing land. She also remained, Manon remained the smart, young. she was less young at this point, but the smart woman she had been when she remembered to keep that document asking her to come, the summons asking her to come back to Paris, so that she could show it to the police, she learned that in the very beginnings of New Orleans, they knew they didn't have enough soldiers to clear the land, so they needed help. So if a private citizen cleared land, and if that private citizen built a structure on that land, that was it, they were property owners. This only happened at the very beginning, but Manon Fontaine and her blacksmith husband, whose name was Bourguignon, the Burgundian, because he came from a tiny village in Burgundy, Manon and Bourguignon cleared land. And so they were property owners. They were tiny little dwellings, but Manon Fontaine lived in New Orleans from the beginnings of New Orleans until 1734. She was one of the original residents. When she died in 1734, Manon Fontaine owned five lots in what is today the French Quarter. I assure you they are prime addresses in the French Quarter. And as, as she knew she was very ill, just before her death, she drew up a beautiful will. She asked various friends to come and be witnesses at her will, and she gave away her property. She detailed one lot to so and so, one lot to so and so. So and so lent, lent me money for bread during my last illness. I'm going to pay them back. She, a great aristocrats in France, very frequently left huge debts when they died. They didn't pay their debts, they didn't pay their servants, they just left them. They abandoned all of this Manon Fontaine paid every cent that she owed and the will is so beautiful it's a testimony to what I think is another quality these women possessed the ability to forge these deep and lasting bonds they were good friends Good friends to the people with whom they had crossed the Atlantic in those horrendous circumstances, and good friends to the people they knew. So, Manon Fontaine in 1700 in Paris is treated like expendable, not even worthy to be a part of Paris. 1734 in New Orleans, Manon Fontaine was called Dame, Lady. She was worth the highest title of respect because she was an important member of the community in New Orleans. Now that's, I think, a pretty remarkable life to live out between 1700 and 1734.
0: That is incredible. Now, some women were nearly as successful, perhaps even more so, while others were not. Can you talk a bit about some of the other women who were deported?
1: Right. There are all kinds of different fates, naturally, Gary, not everyone has the same thing. Manon was incredibly successful in terms of accompli- putting, having a foothold in New Orleans. She was not worth a lot of money. Her lots were not prestigious. When the home in which she lived at the end was sold after her death so that her debts could be paid, it was described as a shack. She had not lived excessively well. Some of the women accumulated really extensive, expensive properties, more prestigious properties. They built better houses. One of them, for example, is a a remarkable young woman from Marie Daudin from Orleans, France. So Orléans, the old Orléans, she ended up living in also in Nouvelle Orléans. And Marie Daudin's first husband was a ship's captain. That's a very prestigious marriage at the start. Her ship captain husband was killed during the Natchez French Wars in 1729. So she's a widow with children. She remarries uh, in New Orleans and she marries a carpenter. And they do they do well. They have more she has more children, but he dies as well. Her third marriage was to a New Orleans merchant a fabric merchant in New Orleans. And one of her daughters from her second marriage married the fabric merchant's junior partner. So through the textile industry, the French French fabrics were much desired in uh, the United States. And through the textile industry, these men were really prosperous. So Marie Daudin, she was a desperately poor dock worker's daughter in Orléans. Her father carried sacks around the docks and lived from hand to mouth. She became another well-respected resident of New Orleans with very prestigious properties. And one of her daughters owned, I mean, incredibly uh, valuable um, and prime real estate with fine houses, houses that were singled out for their, for their significance. So some women had lives in which they had greater financial prosperity. Others had had so many descendants, they had numerous children, and some of those children became prosperous. Some of the women who lived in Mobile, uh, La Mobile, as the French called it, had their their descendants, children and grandchildren, owned huge territories in the city and around the city. So their families amassed property and prestige. And some of them, of course, didn't have prestigious lives, but they held on. And I think all of these kinds of stories, there's so many different kinds of stories that I can't tell you a quarter of them, but they were never, I wanna stress this, not once were they accused of crimes they were certainly not thieves. They were certainly not prostitutes, as the French legal system claimed. They were certainly not murderers. They were upstanding citizens, and they were respected in all their communities.
0: Yes, for the full story, they will have to get the book. And on that note, you mention how this is a virtually unknown part of history, but you argue that it should be more well-known given the documentation available. Can you explain how this history was hidden in plain sight and how you came to rediscover it?
1: Yeah. Thank you, Gary. That's a, it's a good question. It was was purely an accident. My favorite period is the very late 17th century and the very early 18th century. uh, And especially in Paris. And I was digging in prison, the prison and, and arrest police archives and prison archives in Paris are extraordinary and dense. And one day I was looking for someone in 1719, I, I no longer remember who or why, I was looking for someone whose last name began in F, they're alphabetized. And I came across this file, which was Marie, Manon Fontaine's file, and it had her name on the cover as they are supposed to do they don't always but someone else in a different handwriting had added a note and other female prisoners for louisiana and i was born in louisiana so i noticed this note and i started reading these stories and i this explains it was in plain sight right there and you could find them. However, the few people who have ever looked at any of this have always believed what was in that file. And as I told you, in that file, Manon Fontaine is there and she's down as having murdered 15 men. Other women are listed as thieves, other women as prostitutes. So people, and not many people have looked into them, People just copied this, and the first women to the found women who found New Orleans are listed as serial killers, etc. Manon Fontaine is down in a number in the few studies that mention her; she's down as having murdered 15 men. But I am more suspicious of the Parisian police in the early 18th century because this is these were not the first prisoners whose stories I had followed. So I knew about police corruption and the issue it was. And I just decided I would see what I could dig. And I began with Mano Fontaine and I went to the National Archives, a completely different archive, contains all the records of the judicial system. So what happens at the time, arrests and trials. And I just, my, I have a very simple strategy. I try to read everything. And I was going through the boxes. And there's one big box, really heavy big box of trials for a 25-year period in Paris. It's a big box, but 25 years is a lot of time. And a lot of people were arrested and tried. And so I didn't have much hope. But I went through trial after I just would look at the covers. And in the the very bottom of that box, there was a file, Fontaine-Marie. And it was her it was the story of the 1700 arrest in paris so it was in plain sight but you had to be suspicious of the police in order to dig and once i saw that i knew i couldn't quit so it just continued years of digging
0: what a remarkable story the book is mutinous women how french convicts became founding mothers of the gulf coast Thank you very much for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Gary, for having me. Thank you for your interest in these women.
0: As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support.